everyone. This is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Justin. And I'm Adi, and today we're thrilled to have Professor John List joining us. John A. List is a Kenneth, Kenneth C. Griffin Distinguished Service Professor in Economics at the University of Chicago. For decades, his field experimental research has attempted to better understand how markets, incentives, and behavior interact while dealing with the complexity of the real world. This has led to collaborative work with a number of firms, including Lyft, Uber, General Motors, United Airlines, and many others. He has published over 200 peer-reviewed articles and several books, ranking as the eighth most influential economist, according to the Ideas Ranking. List was elected a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences in 2011 and a fellow of the Econometric Society in 2015. He received the 2010 Kenneth Galbraith Award, the 2008 Hour Prize for Senior Economists, and is a current editor of the Journal of Political Economy. Thank you so much for joining us, Professor Hey, it's great to be here, guys. Thanks for having me. Great. So I want to get started with a quick question from sort of the background and the pioneering work you've done in field experiments. Um, your work has touched so many areas from finance, uh, charities, gift giving, even tipping and rideshare. What's an area where field experiments, you know, haven't been able to sort of crack the puzzle yet? Yeah, it's a good question. So I think one bigger area has been macro. And when I say macro, I'm thinking about changing interest rates in in important ways in looking how people's behavior might change or changing the money supply or changing some macro aggregate that we care about. Now, years ago, I was on Reddit. And somebody inquired kind of the same thing. And they were asking me if you could have any chance to run a new kind of field experiment, what would you like to do? And I said the same answer. I'd like to do something in macro. And then they said, well, how do you think you can do that? And I said, well, of course, I can't be in charge of the central bank or or make an, an important change in a country. But I said, I think we can make some kind of, of insights or, or, or learn something deep if I was able to go into a, a game and I was thinking of Second Life or some kind of uh, society where people are making trades and, and uh, behaving in certain ways. And about a week later, um, execs from Valve called me. And Valve said, look, we heard what you wanted. We're willing to work with you. And we're going to give you a shot to do some of your macro experiments. And I let that go. But now in the past few months, I'm back engaged with with Valve. So I think there might be something interesting coming soon. And I'll leave it at that. Oh, wow. That's very exciting. Very exciting. Yeah, thank you for that. I guess uh, since we're on the topic of macro experiments and you know, kind of given the field of economics has you know, gotten more um, field oriented. I was wondering what are the tools that researchers have developed and currently use it to gain, to gain valuable data and insight to create hypotheses when yeah. you're in the field? No, that's a good question. So I think that the major movement that I've observed is generating new data. So, you know, up until like the early 90s, the typical idea was an economist sat in the office and voila, they had an idea. <laughs> so they wrote down a model. They then downloaded mounds and mounds of data. They beat up the data 
called data science now. And they made assumptions to say something causal about the data. So you have different approaches of instrumental variables. You have to make exclusion restriction assumptions, mm -hmm. uh, propensity score matching. You have to make what's called the conditional independence assumption, et cetera, et cetera. So that was yesterday in my mind, which is using big data sets and trying to go beyond correlations to do something in a causal way. <laughs> what I do is I use the world as my lab. So a lot of you might be thinking, well, what does he mean world is my lab? <laughs> so I want the listeners to think in their minds and just play along with these questions. One, have you taken an Uber in the last five years? A second question, have you taken a Lyft in the last five years? Mm -hmm. A third question, have you flown United Airlines mm -hmm. in the past five years? Another question, did you vote in the last presidential election? Now, at this moment, everyone would have raised their hand at least once. Right. Mm -hmm. All of you have been subjects of mine in one of my experiments. Now, it's not creepy that I can't <laughs> attach your name to how you behave, but mm -hmm. I can say people like you, when I raise the price of Lyft, say by 10%, mm -hmm. people like you might lower your quantity demanded by 14% in terms right. of using Lyft. So I can say that. And that's unique now because think about hard scientists and using experiments and learning about the world. In economics now, we learn about the world by generating data but we generate it by using randomization. So we randomly put some people in one group and another group of people in another treatment. And then from there, you look at behavioral differences mm -hmm. and then that's a causal impact or you can make causal mm -hmm. inference. So the only real assumption I need most of the time is that I have appropriate randomization, which t tends to be pretty innocuous compared to when you analyze observational data. One of the interesting parts about building out an experiment is all of these moving parts. I would assume that in order to, you know, get people to use uh, Uber, there's a lot of capital flowing yeah. in and out of there. Um, and you obviously started your work looking at the sports car market. Yeah. Um, could you talk us through the evolution of these experiments and how this has really become, in many ways, sort of an interesting uh, intersection between public sector yeah. or academics and uh, the private sector and all the money there? No, absolutely. That's a good, that's a good point. So. If you look back at my career, I started to do field experiments around 1990 in the baseball card market. Now, you might be thinking of baseball so, card market. Yeah, what, yeah, what in the world is that? What do you mean baseball card? This guy's not being serious, right? He's, uh, he, he, he's a joke. Yeah. Um, two reasons why I used the baseball card market early on. One, it was the only way I could fund my research. I was an undergrad at University of Wisconsin, Stevens Point, and I was a grad student at the University of Wyoming. And really people, maybe they did not believe that field experiments could be valuable early on. Mm -hmm. I think it's fair to say that. So who's, who's gonna fund your work? The National Science Foundation is not gonna fund your work. <laughs> and there aren't rich people to help fund your work who, who, are, gonna, who are going to give money to a person like me. Mm -hmm. Okay. so. One reason why was for funding. The second reason why is because I was a dealer in this market. So every weekend I would go and buy, sell, and trade. Mm -hmm. 
And I would learn about economics in the classroom. And then I would take those learnings and apply them in the field. And I would test them in the field. Mm -hmm. That's what I did as an undergrad and grad student. And I started to realize, wow, I could use the baseball card market as my lab. Mm -hmm. And that would give me a glimpse into whether economic theory is correct in the baseball card market. And then hopefully I can extend those learnings beyond. Now, now that's an assumption that you have to make. Mm -hmm. What happens in the baseball card market is similar to what happens outside. Okay. Fast forward. Late 90s uh, come and I'm an assistant professor at the University of Central Florida. Mm -hmm. And a lot of charitable organizations begin to reach out to me to help them in their fundraising efforts. Great. Now I can move beyond the baseball card market and I can work with charitable organizations. And I can answer questions like, why do people give to charitable causes? What keeps them committed to charitable causes? What are the best things a charitable organization can do? Super. Now I'll move on a few more years and I start to receive phone calls from firms. Now I have charitable organizations, still working with them, I have firms. So now it's kind of time to say goodbye to the baseball card market. I, I don't oh, no. need you anymore. <laughs> you know, hello world, so to speak. And I start to do experiments with United Airlines, with Chrysler, Best Buy, et cetera, et cetera. And then I become really interested in early childhood education. And I'll talk a little bit about that tonight. So I, I really wanted to help young people close the opportunity gap. So for that kind of experiment, really large scale field experiment, I need 20 to $30 million. Now I start talking to generous people who have wealth. Mm. And they give me a big gift at the University of Chicago and I start my own preschool. So oh, now that, that preschool, which we're still tracking the kids, they're sophomores and juniors, this not only helps the community, it helps us learn about the education production function, and it helps us learn about scaling, which I'll also talk a little bit about tonight. Now, from there, I start to receive calls from firms asking me to be their chief economist. Mm -hmm. And I ended up biting the bullet and going to Uber. So I became the chief economist of Uber in 2015. And I did that for two years, and I ended up quitting Uber about four years ago, and I moved to their main rival, Lyft. And this is a, this is a funky <laughs> California labor law that allowed me to, to quit the Uber chief economist position on a Friday. And then the next Monday, I started at Lyft. <laughs> Amazing. And so I've been doing Lyft for four years. And you're right that this has really opened up not only a really rich type of research agenda, but also... It's really an exploration in a showcase that other academics should follow in terms of firms are opening up. They're opening up for partnerships. You work with them in a lot of the deep puzzles, a lot of the deep questions that we have never been able to answer before mm -hmm. with a firm as a partner with the big data right. and the opportunities that they give you. This is exactly the time that we're seeing. I think in a decade, uh, 20 years, you're going to have nearly every firm have a chief economist and they're going to be working hard on the same types of problems I'm working on with firms. But I also think they're going to have scale units and these scale mm -hmm. units are going to be looking at ideas to see if they're scalable.
Right. So that, that's kind of the next frontier after the chief economist. So I'm, I'm glad you pointed that out. And that, that's been my road to working with private organizations and developing partnerships that can help change the world. And, and now you've, you've written your book, The, the Voltage Effect. Yeah. And a few ideas from that book um, include watching out for false positives, knowing whether your success rests on you know, ingredients, as you say, or the chef, and avoiding diseconomies of scale. I was, I was just curious to know if you could tell, uh, tell our listeners a little bit about when you have seen these strategies executed well and when you've um, seen them executed poorly. Yeah, that's a good question. Thanks for reading the book. I see that <laughs> you, uh, you've, you've read it carefully, which doesn't surprise me because the CMC students are excellent. Uh, this is, Thank I you. think, my fourth or fifth trip back here. And it's always such a pleasure to meet such young and bright and energetic people. Um, you're right. So the book points out five vital signs that an idea has to have to at least have a chance to scale. Mm -hmm. So the book is about ideas. And it doesn't mean that you still don't have to execute. Right. But, but it's just showing you that if your idea does not have these vital signs, mm -hmm. then it has no shot. Mm -hmm. You need to go back to the lab and change up some features of your idea, and then maybe it will be scalable. But you still are going to need to execute. Mm -hmm. But a few examples. So false positives. This is, to me, in economics, we have things called unnecessary condition. And that means it has to happen for any chance of the rest of the stuff happening. Mm -hmm. And that's false positive. So what I mean by false positive is, you look at an idea and you say, wow, is there voltage in that idea? Mm -hmm. We know when we do statistics that there's a false positive rate. It's called the error rate of 5%. So back in the 80s, I talk about this story about Nancy Reagan. Mm -hmm. so, so Nancy Reagan was really against teens using drugs. So she had a program called D.A.R.E., and it was base, basically a social inoculation program. It was to teach kids not to use drugs. <laughs> and that, that was her stick. Okay. And she would look into the television screen and say, if you're thinking about using drugs, just say no. <laughs> so, so they sent around officials to all kinds of high schools. I still mm -hmm. remember when they came into my high school and, and they gave us their, their shtick. Mm -hmm. And I looked at my teacher and I said, there's no way this is going to work. And I'll tell the story tonight as well. So there's no way this is going to work. And he looked at me and said, John, they have data. Mm -hmm. They actually did have data. They had a really big data set from Honolulu, Hawaii. Wow. It had 1,777 people, but it was a false positive. The data were lying. The gotcha. data said that DARE will work, but uh -huh. they did not go back and replicate. So that's, that's the I key see. here is if you have voltage right away, Check it out again mm -hmm. and check it out again. And if it checks out, we're in business. If it doesn't, move on to something else. So there are a lot of examples like that in business and in government. And you brought up some other ones about, you know, some ideas just don't have economies of scale. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you might be thinking, that's a lot of economies. Uh, what does economies <laughs> of scale mean? So economies of scale means is as you expand production, mm -hmm. the cost per unit to produce it actually goes down. The average cost goes mm -hmm. down. Um, lots of good ideas have that. When you talk to business people like Elon Musk or, or Jeff Bezos, 
or Travis Kalanick, they will all start with, does my idea have economies of scale? And if it doesn't, they'll try to figure out a way to make the idea have economies of scale. Mm -hmm. Now in government, it's really interesting. I worked in government for two years in the White House. The government hardly ever talks about economies of scale. They usually talk about the benefit profile. And right. when we scale it, what happens to the benefit profile? And is there inequities? Yeah. Or, or do things end up uh, you know, roughly being the same for people? And that's one of the biggest differences between firms and governments is one really focuses on the supply side, the, mm. the cost side, and one focuses on the demand side or the benefit side. Yeah, I wanted to follow up on this idea, sort of distinction between governments and private businesses. Yeah. Um, it seems like, on one hand, a lot of companies, uh, for example, Uber or Lyft, uh, can sort of hone in on a very particular market and choose yeah. who they want to cater their idea to, whereas government, on the other hand, has to sort of cater to everyone. Mm -hmm. um, and I'd love to get your thoughts on how this challenge of really knowing your audience can differ between those two different sides and how strategies for scaling might also differ. No, it's a good question uh, and a good insight. So it is true that the federal government a lot of times thinks about it as a one-size-fits-all. And they think, well, to be fair, we need to give the program to everyone. Otherwise, we might be accused of not treating everyone in a fair manner. Mm -hmm. And then that causes you, of course, to do a lot of things that are inefficient because we know one size fits all will never work. Right. Now, but that's the beauty behind a federalist system is that you can push down to the states or the local governments and give them the ability and let's say in some cases you have a funded mandate, in other cases you might have an unfunded mandate, where you say to the, the local government, it's your responsibility to provide public education, for example. The federal government will, will have some guidelines at the top level and might fund some public education, but for the most part, the localities are in charge of it and they can then, of course, try to target the type of education that they think their citizens want mm. and desire. So in that way, you're right at the federal level, but that's why a lot of things are locally provided. Right. And then True. you can say, well, some have good and some have bad. Some have this, some have that. That's why people move. It's called, <laughs> it's called tibu sorting, is that yeah. right. if people don't like the local public goods or don't like the jobs or don't like the crime levels, they move. It's mm -hmm. called voting with your feet. <laughs> and, and that ends up being a really efficient system. Right. Now, Uber, on the other hand, of course, we have multiple markets. Now, there, a lot of times, if you put tipping, for example, if you allow drivers in one market to have tipping, a lot of cases, you have to allow it in other markets, too. Otherwise, the drivers complain, and they say, we're going to leave the platform. So mm -hmm. in that way, I'm going to turn it around on you and say, <laughs> Sure, there are a lot of different markets and Uber can try to specialize, but there are some things like tipping in the app mm. that they're kind of tied to right. the mast where they have to be homogeneous across the markets and they can't decentralize and let local governments provide it, so to speak. Right. So, so there are some cases where it gets flipped on its head. Now, all that said, I think the biggest difference on, on that front between 
government and firms is that when the government puts out a new program, it ends up being very hard to take it back. So, for yeah. example, a government has something like an early childhood program. You, they don't really find out for five or seven years whether it's working, if they find out at all if it's working. Yeah. Find out in five or seven years and then say, wow, it's not working. Let's try <laughs> to take that back. Good luck. The people are yeah, <laughs> the, not going to be happy. Because there will be people entrenched who are getting economic rents mm -hmm. and who are making profits from it. And they're like, no way you can yeah. take that. Yeah. People are up in arms. Whereas... In many cases, what happens in the firm, it's a lot easier to bring it back. Mm -hmm. Not always. Like, like tipping would be an example that was hard to take back. And that's why we took it so seriously when we did the introduction back in the summer of 2017. We did a bunch of testing on it because we knew once you introduce that, you know, the drivers have the right to receive tips, it'd be super hard to take that mm -hmm. back. But there are other cases where we introduce ideas that are just duds, right. and then they just go away. Yeah. Not harder for the federal yeah. government to do that, or, or state or local governments yeah. to do that, yeah. too. Yeah. Oh, no, totally. And on the topic of uh, generating like new ideas, I love reading new books to kind of like learn new things about the world, um, new, new ways to solve problems. And I know a lot of your experience is based on um, being in the field, but I was just wondering if you had any book rec recommendations that you've read in the past or are currently, currently yeah. reading that kind of fundamentally change the way you think? Oh, great. I love that question. So on the one hand, I'm going to give you a caveat that when I read, I pretty much read textbooks. Wow. I'm kind of strange <laughs> that way. I will either read textbooks or academic papers. Okay. Just kind of how I am. Okay. So what like books have affected me the most? I think it goes back to Adam Smith. Uh, now, Adam Smith is tricky because the insights are deep, but he should use maybe two paragraphs to make a point, mm. and he uses 22 <laughs> pages. And they're like half the words you don't understand because he's talking this 18th century yeah. uh, old English Lingo, type. It's yeah. like, I, I can't get it. I, this is crazy. Mm. But I urge everyone to take a look at that and because the insights are pretty deep, but it is true that when you try to explain specialization in a pin factory, you really only need a few paragraphs. You don't need, you know, as many pages as, <laughs> as he uses. But, but I think that's a good one. I, I think more recently, you know, if people have not read Freakonomics, mm. I would urge them okay. to read Freakonomics. I, that's is a, is a truth in lending here. Steve Levitt is my best friend. He's the author of Freakonomics. So... Uh, so take that it, shout it, it, out. It, it's my shout out. Um, you know, I like Angela Duckworth's book called Grit. Yeah, and, I've and seen her talk. It, yeah, yeah, Angela's great. She's, an old, she's a friend of mine as well. My Now I'm going to also give a, uh, a shout out to my wife. So my wife is going to have a new book come out in the end of April. Wow. And that's going to be titled Parent Nation. And what she is, so, so she's a cochlear implant surgeon. Wow. And on the side, she and I do research together. Mm -hmm. And she's a wonderful social scientist, but she also has this deep heart to help kids and families that never really have a chance. So her idea is we need to fundamentally change the landscape of how we treat parents, in, not only in America, but around the world. So you think about uh, paid leave for, for having a child, mm. paternity leave. Every other country, we have this, and it's wonderful. 
We don't have it in the U.S. No. Yeah, so she goes after that, and she talks about what we need to do to form a parent nation. So I, I read that book and, and helped give her comments, and um, it's just a wonderful book. So I'll stop there with my uh, with my fun advertisement for my wife. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so you're a guy that reads academic papers and textbooks, and you've written papers on formal methodology, yet the book that you've written sort of reads like something that you could just pick off the shelf yeah. and anyone yeah. would be able to read and understand. How do you translate yeah. complex economics ideas and research into something that's digestible and usable for the everyday person? Yeah, that's a million dollar question now. Because, so I've written, let's say, three very different kinds of scholarship. On the one hand, I write for academic journals. Mm-hmm. And that that is one kind of writing where it is 100% economies, mm-hmm. 100% economies. So economies, for all of you who don't know, is a language that we have in economics that's just filled with jargon and <laughs> Greek symbols and a bunch of math, and that's our currency. Okay, that's one kind of writing. Another kind of writing is textbook writing. So I've written a Principles of Economics book with my friends Darone Asiamuglu, who I understand is coming to visit at the end of the month, uh, maybe in a few weeks, and um, and David Labson, who's a professor at Harvard. So that's another kind of writing that is trying to distill difficult concepts in a way that the very first moment that a person is trying to learn economics, I want them to read my book and I want them to be able to digest it. And then I want to slowly infiltrate the chapters with economies Mm. and uh, critical thinking skills and graphing in, in logical thinking, et cetera. That's another kind of writing. And then the third kind of writing is what we're having to do with the voltage effect. Now, this kind of writing is altogether different from the first two in that I'm trying to write this book so my grandpa, <laughs> my dad, and my brother would all understand. Now, I bring them up because they were all truck drivers. My grandfather is a trucker. My dad was a trucker. My brother is a truck driver. So if I can write something and distill knowledge and sometimes very complex topics and very complex situations and organizations and distill it down to where I can talk to my family about it. And because it's really easy to back off and explain things in math. It's really easy to back off and explain things in economies. It's a whole different thing, and you need a whole different level of understanding to write a book that a truck driver will understand. So for me, it ends up, where does this come from? It comes from, look, I worked in the White House for two years. And when you're sitting around a table that has a vice president, Condi Rice, Colin Powell, Robert Mueller, and, and this is just one meet, one type of um, a group I was in when we were trying to form Homeland Security. It was right after 9-11 when I worked in the White House. So we were forming the Homeland Security Agency. You have to explain economics at a level that they are smart, very Mm -hmm. smart people, but they don't have a formal economics training. Mm -hmm. So when you have a lot of practice explaining in that setting, explaining to local and state government officials, explaining economics at the firm, 
and in boardrooms. And you explain it to a person who doesn't have a lot of time. And you need to distill something complex in an Econ 101 way, in an intuitive way. It's all of these different venues I've been in my whole life. And then add, I've taught this type of class for 25 years. I started a class called Economics for Everyone at University of Chicago, which is basically meant to teach economic principles to people who will only take one econ class. Add all that together, and I end up being okay at, at that. And, and I want the readers to judge, you know, whether the voltage effect is well written for that audience. But it's, it's really the compilation of years of experience. And this is a book I could not have written in the 90s. I couldn't have written it for numerous reasons. One, I just didn't have the knowledge. I didn't have the experience. And another is I just couldn't write like that. It's just, it's impossible. It would have been impossible for me to write like that back then because I didn't think like that. Mm -hmm. And now after all the experience, this is what you end up with. And I mean, that's that's really the true test of knowledge if you're able to you know explain uh, you know complex concepts and beyond the jargon and really break it down to like the, the first principles and what are, they really mean. Yeah, let, let me add on to that just for a second. I know I've talked a lot, but you are 100% right. So I think about the level of knowledge or the depth of your knowledge. It starts out by if you can do research in the area. Mm-hmm. And then it goes to can you teach it right. to students? That's the, the next level. The third level is can you teach it to non-students who have never thought about economics before? Mm-hmm. And that means you have to have an even deeper level of knowledge than you need when you teach college kids. And you have to have a pretty deep level there because when you go in front of smart students who are sharpshooters, if you don't understand it at a very deep level, A, you're going to look like a clown. <laughs> and B, it's hard for you to explain it in a way that people will understand. You just can't if you don't understand it at a deep level. So to teach it, it does take a special level in and of itself. But it's a new level to write a popular book. Right, totally. I, I Unfortunately, that is all the time we have for today. Um, thank you for joining us, Professor List. Um, and to all our listeners, remember to stay hungry. Oh, I like that. I like that. And stay monomaniacal. Thanks so much for having me, guys.